there's something about the posture of pride versus shame that is very, very visible mm-hmm. from stage. People notice that. They don't know how to describe it. They just say, you seem really comfortable up there. And it's like, a lot of people aren't comfortable in their own skins and you can see it. You can really see it. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Cameron Moore. Hello, Cameron. Hi, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't matter how many times I do the show, I nearly always like awkwardly laugh at that point because it is so weird we're like going from like just we're already talking we're already sort of like communicating and then suddenly we're in a show it's formal i'm doing a we're here doing the introduction we're in the sound studio yeah i mean (laughs) doesn't doesn't matter how much you try and get away from it your your show ends up having conventions it's true even if you even if you're desperately trying to break them (laughs) uh, all the time so the first question that i ask everybody is how do you know me I know you through my friend Adrian, who has performed with you and collaborates with you a fair bit on the in stand-up tragedy. Yeah, yes. Um, especially in Edinburgh, I think is where he's really involved in that, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, he's done. He's performed with us in London too. Yeah. But I, I met him. We met through Edinburgh, I yeah. guess, and then yeah, and this year he's going to be doing a like one of our guest hosts. Yeah, um, so he's going to sort of like yeah be hosting the show, which not very many people apart from me has done. So that's cool. yeah. So so when I knew that I was going to be spending some time in London, and I said, "Hey, storytelling shows," what he said, "Dave is your man." Yeah, yeah. And so, I'd and I'd already seen I'd seen your show right. myself. Oh um, well, yeah, we met briefly, but like we didn't really. Right. Mm-hmm. And I sort of like it, it's always weird when you're sort of rushing to, to you see someone's show, but then you got to rush mm-hmm. to, to the next place to see the next show. Yes. and you can't sort of spend the time you'd you'd like to, yes. to spend with someone. Now at this point, I've also booked you for my show yes. and also for for Spark as well. So you, yes, we, we've I've seen you perform a few times doing storytelling as well as your your full length theatre show. And I went to Natural Born Story. Storytellers, which was one of your one of your recommendations, I did that last night. It went really well. So yeah, you, you just I like this nexus of like storytelling happenings, and that that that's um, it's really been good to connect through that scene. So yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I'm I'm a big fan of your show. It was probably one of my favorite things I saw in Edinburgh last year, and it's also kind of broadly within the wheelhouse of sort of interests of mine I guess mm-hmm. like sexuality yes capitalism I guess yeah like it, to a certain extent I think so and like storytelling and, tr- and truth and all those kind of things and and you know I'm, I'm I guess I'm quite broadly speaking a supporter of sex worker rights mm-hmm. as well and so that was one of the reasons mm-hmm. I wanted to to see that show although you know it's always weird as a non-sex worker yeah. like just the same as with feminism I'm not trying to speak for women mm. I'm not trying to speak for sex workers either in my support but you're it's just a, learning you're just going right. and learning and that's that's great it gets to a weird point though I guess where you're sort of like where you've learned quite a bit and you want to try and help the broader aims of sex workers yes. without talking over them you know like my job to argue with non-sex workers in some ways uh, for sex workers rights in 
conversation at least but it might be well yeah if there's not like a sex worker present who mm-hmm. wants to right. who exactly. wants who's even present or who was there maybe but doesn't want to take it up you right. know it, it might be that's always the thing that's like it. you have to be ready to step into the breach right if, once if, you know there's a breach yeah you're you if you don't step into it then that's also a, a, a problem not an ally yeah. move yeah. right exactly yeah. Mm-hmm. so i'm sort of yeah. always trying to find my feet and i'm sure i get loads of things wrong <laughs> um but there we go that's the, yes we've sort of already touched on this to a certain extent well both parts of of this but the second question I ask everybody is what do you do now I now am an emerging I would say like playwright and performer um still emerging Uh, I don't know someone I I saw recently said they've never arrived they're always just arriving Right. There, you know, they're, 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 it's not it's not ever like a set end point where you know that you've finally reached some point, you know, that you've finally like achieved everything. So I'm still arriving in that sphere. I still do phone work. I still do phone sex work when I'm back in North America. I mean, I identify as a sex worker, but that's not like a major part of my identity. Right. It's a job that I do. I, I think those things and I'm moving towards a more of a, an educator or facilitator kind of role in some of the events that I do where right. I, where it's not just me telling my stories but facilitating a space where other people can tell their stories so the smut slam that I'm doing at Edinburgh the smut slam cabaret right. is an example of that where I'm hosting and that takes a certain amount of energy as you know and, and curating but I'm making the space where these discussions around authentic sexuality can happen right. so that's that's an a, like a, a an accidental byproduct of the work that I've done in theater and as a phone sex operator. Just, I've got the real life experience in a certain narrow sphere. I've got real life knowledge. If I were to go to a university, I'm sure I could take that and say, this is real life credits you should be giving me here, you know, as a sexologist or as a relationship counselor or as something, you know. So I, instead of hanging back and saying, oh, I'm not really trained for that. I shouldn't be doing that. That's, that's, oh, that, that, I don't have the credentials. I'm starting to step into owning the experience that I have got, which is not insignificant. And that's, it's an interesting process that of like claiming my own knowledge, you know, right. uh, and, and eventually there's writing that I'm doing, there's books that I want to do, there's blogs that I do. So writing authentic sexuality, performing and facilitating, that's kind of the whole exciting blend. Yeah. 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 And it, I mean, and it, you know, it is a, it is a really interesting and, and exciting blend. I mm-hmm. think uh, from, from, from my point of view, like that you've got three, three different shows, right. That you, you, you've got your two theater shows. I've got right? four plays. Right. Right. I've right. I've got okay. four plays total so far. I'm working on my fifth. Right. Smut Slam is a storytelling event. Right. That I run in Montreal or wherever I am. Normally it's an open mic, but I don't trust, I don't trust audiences in Edinburgh not to get drunk and fuck it up. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I, I just feel like I, I don't, you. I don't, you. you don't make enough money there to handle the hecklers. I just, there's going to be enough issues with the hen parties and and the, the drunk fuckers coming in at 11.15 at night, you know, it's like, that's not... So I went with curating. But normally, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a open mic storytelling event. Right. So four plays, fifth one on its way, Smut Slam Cabaret. Yeah, that's that's what I've got for the performing side of things. Right, and you're generally performing your shows. My own shows, yeah. And then when you do that, you also tend to do Smut Slam alongside that, right? Yeah, that usually that happens <clears throat> if I can make space for it. When I perform Phone Whore, the first play, the one that you saw, yeah. if I can arrange it, I do like a Q&A or a talk back afterwards, right. which is its own kind of separate event now in, in fringe festivals of course you never have time for that like there's always the get the fuck out model but 
even at fringe festivals where I don't have the space for the evening, I you know I have my hour that to, and then I have to get out. I'll still go down to the bar. I'll still go somewhere right. where there's gathering space, and I'll let people know after the show if you have questions. I'm available now for half an hour. Right. So that that that's its own kind of discussion segment. And when I take it out and tour the show, that's the way I pitch it. Like that's it's that's a full evening length show because people need time to unwind after right. that show. Yeah, they, they really, really do. Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah, I was regretful that I couldn't mm. sort of go, come and meet you and have that mm-hmm. unwind time that you offered because I think yeah, I could have done with it. Yeah. Um and it is a, it is a powerful show, I think. And it's kind of like it's a surprisingly powerful show. It takes you by surprise prize with its with its power which is great and I enjoy that process but I guess you've made a decision uh, to have the aftercare model of like how how an artist addresses making work that's provocative and powerful mm. and complicated right mm. rather than rather than going and I know you this comes up all the time so you already know where I'm coming from mm-hmm. but it but going the content note or trigger warning model yeah I'm interested to know what your thinking is around that as someone who I I spend a lot of time worrying about content notes mm. like not just on this show but also the stand-up tragedy like mm-hmm. to a certain extent I'm trying to create spaces where we can talk about mm-hmm. stuff that that people don't want to talk about but I sort of think of it as like trying to to make a safe space to talk about unsafe things mm-hmm. and that's quite hard balanced mm-hmm. and I haven't always got it right I mean I think you've got it right as far as like it's easy enough to create well, not easy enough it's to create a safer space because it's nothing is totally right. safe no safer space, space um, for people to talk about it I think very much you've already achieved that like I think there's something about the way that you you interact with your guest tellers like that it felt very safe to tell uh, I think what we're talking about is uh, creating a safer space for people to hear right the Audience. stories right yeah so those are two different groups that you're take, trying to take care of right so I don't remember did you have trigger warnings do you put trigger warnings well, on I, stand-up tragedy I mean or? to a certain extent like yeah I started start the show with a kind of general content note about what people mm-hmm. should expect through tragedy mm-hmm. um, and you know that there are going to be complicated there definitely is going to be complicated yes. stuff coming up yeah um, and then you know for my own piece uh, at the last one I did a, an extra content note because I knew that there was some stuff in that that yeah. would be problematic for people and I'm doing that for my solo show yeah. at this year calling it a content note or yeah. a trigger warning content note completely I yes. don't I don't like the idea of trigger warnings I mean, I I can't speak to all kinds of trauma, um, but I've had some trauma myself Mm -hmm. and I don't find that the triggers, the things that trigger it are not what you'd expect Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that argument from many other people Mm -hmm. enough to, to feel like my own personal kind of instinct about it is probably right it's it's right for you it's it's certainly right for you in the works that you do right I don't mind someone using the word trigger warning but I I don't think that that I can adequately warn people about triggers I feel like it's almost for me it's a dishonest statement because I know that it might it might be a completely uh, unproblematic in loads of ways piece, but a, a tune, a yes. song, yeah, whatever, yeah, a smell, a memory, right? Uh, exactly. So, yeah, I, huh, I don't like to use trigger the phrase trigger warning right. um, when, say, universities or venues have asked me for a trigger warning. Can we put a, a warning on this? I'm like, why don't we phrase it like this? We'll say content advisory. And we'll say controversial sexual material. 
And that is as far as I go if someone asks me for that. Normally on all my materials, I'll put mature audiences only. That's kind of the broad kind of approach that I do in pre-show approach to this. I have been, as you say, I've been asked like on a number of occasions, why don't you put a trigger warning on it? You should put a trigger warning on it. And my... My answer has not been satisfactory to a number of people, but I, that's the blowback that I have to live with as an artist, you know. Right. Uh, I, and without going into spoilers here, yeah, it's exactly. just like what I tell audiences, and I'll tell, the, tell you now on the recording, is what I tell people when I'm flyering them. And for the most part, people find my stuff when I've directly hit them up. Like, the, the, some people come in from programs or whatever and in, in those cases I do chat with them I say you know this is not stand-up comedy right you know this is a comedy you know say, this is yeah. you know because everyone looks at the title phone whore and they think it must be like oh that sounds funny yeah I don't know why that elicits that response no, it's, it's a strange, it's a strange uh, one they feel like it can't possibly be serious with a title like that and so I say well so you understand this is a drama with funny bits, it's okay. You know, drama yeah. with funny bits. It's okay to um, And yeah. <laughs> and um, when I'm out there flyering and promoting, I'll say a lot of people find parts of it, especially towards the end, quite disturbing. That's as far as I'll go. And I feel like that's a good... I think that's I right. think that's quite quite disturbing. Is, is about as, as much responsibility as I can take for that ending. Because you don't know what's going to trigger people. And I think oftentimes when people say you should have a trigger warning... Not always. There's going to be people, there's going to be certainly people who are, who have like life trauma that might be definitely uh, evoked, you know, from, from my play. But sometimes when people talk about trigger warnings, it's the same as people talking about gluten intolerance. And there are people with gluten intolerance, but there's other people it just makes uncomfortable. You know, a little gassy feeling, a little like, mm, I shouldn't have had that pizza. You know, the same thing goes for, I think, trigger warnings when people are like this, there's a difference between really being triggered and having a full out meltdown and being uncomfortable with the, with the content. And I can't know who's going to be triggered. And all I can say is the people who are uncomfortable, it's like, I warned you, if you don't take me seriously in my warning, that is not my fault. And it's not like I give these warnings with kind of a nudge in the ribs and like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's. It's a lot. It's extreme. It's hardcore. You know, I'm not doing that. I look them in the face and I say, a lot of people find this disturbing. Don't take this as a challenge. I'm not trying to get you to toughen up and like take the dare, you know. So I I think from a from a larger point of view, though, as an artist, like putting a trigger warning on it with specifically labeled content. Which is, I think, what people want me to do. Right, they want to. They be, want to be. They want to. Exactly what exactly what is going to be? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that is a, that undercuts an important process or journey for the audience. That that, that if they're that warned about everything that's going on, that they can go down the list. Oh, we got through this part. We got through this part. They're going to be waiting for the other shoe to drop, and I think that that seriously damages the artistic impact of the play. Right. And I don't, and I'm not like, I, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to shock people with it. I can feel myself getting more hesitant around this. I'm not sure. It's, I, it, it, it's, it's a tough subject. I'm not trying to shock people with phone horror, but there is a, a path that I am taking people on. Yeah. And right. I'm asking them to trust me and then. The, the ground opens up beneath their feet. And then I'm asking them to trust me again. Trust me, seriously, I'll pull you out of it. 
I feel like that's important, and I feel like enough people have said that that's what's happening to them. Yeah, that's what happens that, for them. That would be a broadly a good description of how I experienced it as an yeah. audience member. Yeah, yeah. enough people, like the vast majority of people, have said that that's the way it worked for them. That's the way that it felt. They were various degrees of really grateful and happy. And you know, I mean, I've gotten good reviews. I've gotten good, you know. But like the audience members themselves were like really honestly appreciated that experience for what it was to, to I feel that like a, a trigger warning would really reshape that in a way that I don't want to do right I think right. that's what it comes down to is like I I understand that people that it is extremely disturbing I take steps to take care of that afterwards in the play itself and afterwards and that's the best I can do right that's a very long weirdly self-justifying thing but i mean i i get in this discussion a lot it's like well yeah yeah it, no, i mean i it, think you've answered that i mean that <laughs> very well i mean i was interested to hear like and as somebody that i i you know i i broadly don't have sympathy for people who are anti uh trigger warnings or sure. content notes broadly speaking yeah but uh, but I I do see arguments on both sides definitely as an artist yeah and I think that this idea that we like I I definitely don't like anybody who's arguing that people's trauma doesn't matter like, no it and, does and, matter and it definitely it does matters matter. and being kind matters where you can and all of these things but I think that there are a variety of different ways we can go about trying to warn people having yes. care for our audiences yes um, I think aftercare is actually more responsible in some ways than just bugging a trigger warning on it and yeah. then forgetting about yeah. the audience at the end I think too like two, two things one trigger warnings can definitely be overused to comic like it's become a, a bit of a, a laughing stock sort right. of phrase and it's like that's not the right way to do it so, so it's already being overused for comic effect and it's like that mm, I don't like that trend uh, the other thing is I think that trigger warnings or content advisories should be used yeah always for things that are mandatory Say, for example, readings in a college course, right. screenings in exactly. a college course where you have to or, or book readings for a course on like criminal deviancy. Right. You can't opt out. You of those can't situations. opt out of it. Right. Absolutely. Or, or actually in that profession, you're going to have to deal with that. But so how do you, you know, or in that college courses, you're going to have to deal with that. So knowing in advance, these are the descriptions of the things that are coming right. where you are going to have to do that work somehow. The trigger warnings and content advisories are absolutely essential. Theater is not mandatory. Right. Performance is not mandatory. Like being an audience member is not mandatory and you can walk. Right. Absolutely. No, you I, can I, walk. I agree. And I the thing agree. about like phone whore too is that there's enough foreshadowing yeah. in the play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that if someone really wants to walk, if someone is paying attention and everybody is, there's enough foreshadowing that there are a number of places where you can walk out and pretty much avoid those things that the, disturb you. The you know? title of the show itself well, tells people kind of what it's going to be about. In your know. face. Right. right. And yeah. so it's kind of like saying, you know, buy, buying the Sex Pistols album and complaining that it's got swearing in it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it. it yeah, I, I, that's, I, I totally understand that, that, that point of view about it because... You, that's that's the thing that's how I kind of often yeah. feel about stand-up tragedy as well I kind of feel like the name the title mm -hmm. su should suggest to people yeah but, but someone like, might die right. in this story but someone might have like 
an incident. But what I've come to understand about that is, unfortunately, because it's stand-up tragedy, yeah. people often think it's going to be comedy. And I guess you're having that as well with yeah. the phone horror. Phone horror, why? I think phone horror is... <laughs> is, is it's non-conventional enough, right, yeah. for people to, to, to... They should pay attention to, to the words a bit. Just Whereas stand-up tragedy, yeah. I can understand why some people might think that's going to be a comedy show. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so because of that, I've tightened up the way that I that I both sell the show and talk yeah. about the show and yes. also how I run the, the night. But, the, yeah. but, that, but, but like I say, that's part of having a responsibility from an artist to, yes. to an audience. And I think... As artists, we need to talk about responsibility. Yeah. There's far too much work that's made without that responsibility. Yeah. Broadly speaking, the problem with comedy, uh, a lot of comedy, is not that it doesn't have trigger warnings at the beginning, but if it had a trigger warning at the beginning, it still wouldn't have any responsibility when the the, the white privileged guy tells the rape joke mm-hmm. which, they, which they haven't thought about. Yeah, responsibility and accountability. Like, I, I feel like you can do whatever show you want. You can tell whatever jokes you want. But it's a very American thing to say. Freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from criticism. Right. You know. And so when I put out, when I bring the show Phone Whore or any of my other shows, when I bring those shows out to the public, I I am well aware and ready for blowback. I'm not going to turn it around on someone and say, well, that's your fault. You're being too sensitive. I'll say, yeah, it's it's challenging. Or, yeah, it's not for everybody. Yeah. I mean, it's good. You know, and just owning that and saying, yeah, this is the thing that I do. And it may not be for you or yeah, it's hard. I'm sorry that happened to you in your life. I'm sorry. And just, just sitting there with that awkwardness, you know, that's happened a few times being in in a Q and a being in those awkward moments. That's actually part of the discussion Mm -hmm. that needs to to be had. Like it's this idea that we have to run away completely. Like like we should be feeling that Mm -hmm. as artists, we should be thinking about that stuff. If we're going to talk about hard stuff, we need to have those hard feelings. Yes. I mean, and it's good to, it's good for me to talk to someone Mm. like you at this moment in time with the fact that I'm also now in, in a situation where I'm doing a show that's going to be controversial I know it's going to be controversial I know it talks about things that are also you know like I say content note kinds of things Um, and and I know I'm going to have to deal with blowback from a lot of different sides and it it makes me feel very nervous I've been you know I was bullied at school and stuff like that Mm -hmm. which is in fact a big part of the show Mm -hmm. Um, but 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 I mean because of those experiences I'm very nervous about conflict yeah and not probably not just the bullying probably my family life too but anyway I'm 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 nervous about conflict and I know I'm gonna have a load of conflict yeah and I guess you've been in that situation Mm -hmm. for your entire kind of creative career because it's been around yeah yeah these these difficult areas yeah i mean it's it's everything from talking to journalists to poster placement at venues or in stores i mean all my shows well certainly the first two phone whore and slut revolution those are not easy titles to get by people have asked about like asterisk i'm like really like how would that make slut any more palatable you know um it's It's, so it's, it's kind of worse. I it's think. kind of worse, yeah. yeah. So so everything about the the selling of it, the promoting it, the and then like talking with people afterwards. I kind of thrive a little bit on. Com- I'm a bit of a stubborn person, so <laughs> I, I I will confess that there is this kind of like charge that I get from 
making that awkward happen. But I would like to not. I would like to live in a society where that's not a thing. You right. know, I think I think I would do fine without that. But it is a common, common thing for me. But it's, I mean, it's, but it's also part of the complicated thing I think about navigating this area for me is it's about where you come from as well. Mm. So, like, if you're being ballsy and, like, in people's faces and challenging um, and you're and you're talking about sex work and you're a queer person, yeah. a woman, in fact, as well, mm-hmm. I mean... That that all of that stuff like means you're in a position where you can scrap. Yeah. Like I'm my my concern is as a, as 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 someone who ticks most of the boxes of privilege. Like with a feminist, broadly speaking, a feminist show, even using that word as a man is going to piss off some people yeah. about my show. Yeah. But then being ballsy feels like it's wrong in those situations. I don't feel I can, even when I massively disagree with a lot of. Uh, positions within feminism and a lots of kind of sure. things I'm going to come up against because my show is is trans positive and it's yes. sex worker positive yes. and those sorts of things in the kind of show I'm making it means I'm going to be in situations where I I want to like say fuck off to people like you know and and, and tell them why they're wrong yeah. but I'm but I'm but, but you know my structural position means I kind of feel it's wrong to do that you know, I, don't, I don't know like you got to pick your ground <laughs> obviously I think there's something interesting to be found there possibly in what are the what are, I mean your show is mansplaining right it's right. your show so like so it's aimed at men yeah like, it's aimed at it's, yeah. it's explicitly like but that's the problem I think you can take it you, I can I can make sure it isn't problematic but that doesn't matter because that's my view of what problematic yes. is yes and everyone else is going to disagree with that and that's yeah. what you've you will find with your work right? yeah that you've you've made something that you can ethically completely get behind oh yeah I yeah no one's going to argue me right. out of that stuff but I, I guess I'm just like thinking in terms of how we how we talk about our work. We we have to model what it is that we're trying to say in the work. Do you know what I'm saying? So like when my larger guiding ethical, if I could say that I have something guiding ethical f- guideline, I guess is you know to to foster honesty and authenticity and openness around right. this stuff. And so all I can do is say is as far as I can be honest and authentic and open when I talk. So if you're talking about like, well, uh, you don't want to be the mansplainer. Like, what does that look like when you're talking about it out in the world? Like, how do you, how do you model the way that you want the world to be? Um, you obviously can't let people just run roughshod over you with their with their bullshit like right. <laughs> misogyny. Right. But but how do you? hear what they're saying and hear deeper than what they're saying and, and like clarify and reflect right. back. And it's like, Ooh, I mean, I find that I easy. don't have the patience for that. You're yeah. Bravo. <laughs> right. I mean, I find that easier to do. I mean, we'll see. It's going to be my testing time in Edinburgh because I find yeah. that stuff easier to do online yes. because, you know, yes, you know, I come up against say a rad femme or, or even, you know, or an MRA, like it's, 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 it's all sides that are going to dislike this. If I come up against that on Twitter, you can think, Yes. Before you yes. compose, you can compose it. I can, I can be tactful yes. in a way that I doubt I can be in life. You know, so that's going to be. I guess that's worth working on. I'm going. Well, I guess yeah, that's worth working on as you present it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm going to so. try. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, we'll see. Mm-hmm. But you don't. You don't have to have that. That kind of. You haven't, or you haven't got that kind of fear of like of, of that structural position. So you can just like go for it. I guess. Well, when, I think too. I think. One place of strength that you have, that I have, that I operate from, is like these. This is my experience, right? And and That's no true. one gets right. to argue about that. 
no one gets to argue about. This is my experience as a phone sex worker. This is my experience as a, you know, um, a queer woman. This is my experience as a fat woman. Like, you don't get to argue right. with my feelings and my experience. I, I'm, I never say this is the way it is. Right. That I, I never, ever do that. I say, well, this is my sense about this. This is what I think about. This is my hypothesis. So I think that's a very strong and powerful thing to be coming from. And as long as you're really in touch with like, this is my experience. Right. What is your experience? Right. That's, that's, that's the thing that we get to do as storytellers well, is like tell our real stories. That's and, the thing. And that's why I'm trying to make the show very personal yeah. and, and, and keep it within my own yeah. sphere of experience. Mm-hmm. Although I am going to extrapolate oh, to wide, wider society and thoughts. But yes. But I mean, that's been an interesting thing about doing it is 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 experiencing suddenly like I've never experienced it before, but like woman splaining, right? So like now I'm in a situation where you know I've a, a few times listened to women telling me that my experience isn't real and this is how male experience actually is, oh, and that's been an interesting thing yeah. that, that they are really doing exactly the same thing as so many much more men. I'm not saying that yes. it's the same proportions, yeah. but it's interesting. People denying your experience right, because I think lots of people do that, and mm. like across all of these different mm. groups. I mean, mm. like you know, like like you know, white women are and a completely not in touch with the, a, a woman of colour's yes. experience and they, they're going to exp- explain and explain or, you know, yes. way. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it's always heartening, but also depressing to discover that we are as equal as I, I fear, like, that we are as bad as each other, as well as as good it, as each we other. We can right? be. I mean, those are basic, like, <laughs> those are basic human traits that like are more or less supported by structural things, yeah. you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Structure's important and it's always important to remember. Yeah, that. institutional support <clears throat> for like, Right. Individual. When someone's prejudiced from a position without power, it's very different from prejudice from above. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I I found about your show as well that that I liked for today is that one of the things that your show does is you, you, you show the real life kind of reality the mm. mundane mm. reality of mm. a, a phone sex worker <laughs> um and, and that was good for me today because i i thought do i have like normally i've got someone coming around i'm like i gotta put my clothes on and then I, when you come around i was like i oh, know i can stay in my pajamas that's what like yes. that's what cameron's days are like that's what my and days i thought are and, like. I, and that's what podcasters days are like yes right? so yes. i thought that's a it, there's a there's a reason for me not to bother working like at those. home is like yeah yeah, there's no, there's no question. Like the pajamas are a big draw. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. And like you know, just and the, just the way that you're making, the, the way that the kind of food you make, and the way that you make food within that show as well, but just rings very true to my, <laughs> my life, my life, and my lived existence. Yeah, but yeah, that, I really that's the part that I just like. People don't see it from the audience side, but when I'm in that show, especially in in times when I'm on tour and I'm not taking calls. So like while I'm over here in the UK, I'm not doing the phone work. When right. I go back to the states, I will or right. you know, because it's basically your day job. It's kind of my day job and I'm able, take, I'm able to take I'm able to take a sabbatical. My my company's been very generous around that. But when I'm going through that 55 minutes on stage and thinking about that and there's a moment towards the end where I'm like, I feel trapped sometimes is a line that I use. You know, I feel I, I talk about like how I can't really go move far from the house. You know, I've got my cordless phone and right. I can only go so right, far right, out right. of range. And 
that for me is a little tragedy every night that I perform this play because I'm thinking, okay, in three and a half months, I'm going to be back on call. Okay, next week, I'm going to be back on call. And it is a very isolated, trapped feeling that I get when I'm doing that stuff for a long time. And and being out on tour is so fantastic. I don't have to worry about any of that shit. You know, right. I can go wherever I want. But when I'm doing the play, it's like, no, no, no. When I do this work, this is the way it feels. And it really, oh, right. me. I mean, yeah, you're having a real contrast in your yeah. years. Yeah. Like the one half of it very isolated. And then the other half, like super so gregarious. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, as, as well, I guess, like you're... You're doing your phone sex work in America, yeah. in a place where a lot of people, you know, broadly speaking, and this is not true of lots of people too, but broadly speaking, don't travel out of America very much. They don't. Right? And, and you're doing like half of your year kind of very isolated in that, within that mm-hmm. very kind of one cultural, mm-hmm. like existence and then you're traveling all over the world yeah. so you're seeing loads of different not cultures. all over yet well, but like yeah, canada but you know I mean. and like the, the uk reading, yeah, i have right. to like you know slowly build my <laughs> my my territory but uh, yeah but it does it does feel like half the year is all this isolatedness and the isolation is the, is the noun and the other half of the year is is acting that isolation right. and showing that isolation right. and it's but it but for me that remains a very evocative moment when I'm just up there on stage and remembering what it's like to do that. Because even out here, I'm like, I'm far away from everything of that, but like, I know I'm going back to it. Right. And, and you're reminded every time you do your show. Yes. And it makes me sad because I really am an extrovert. <laughs> I really am an extrovert. No, I thrive off are. of this shit. Right. I do. I do. And, and I don't think people... A lot of people I talk to, especially performers, a lot of performers are actually introverts. Yeah. Have, you, have you noticed that? Yeah. Have you, do you know that? Yes. Okay. Because I didn't really know that until I started touring Fringes. Right. And and then it's I would just get people who, I would meet people who really did amazing shows, but were just burnt out by the promoting and the visibility perform. You know, it's like, so they definitely, I don't think it's laziness or entitlement. Sometimes it is, but I don't, I don't, it's like, ah, you know, I'm doing my art and people should just come because of my art. I don't think so. I think that honestly, a lot of performers, they don't get recharged. They they need to get recharged after that extreme output. This has been my observation as well. Like, and and musicians a lot of the time are very introverted as well. And it's, it's interesting that the art scene is kind of structurally privileges extroverts because they can do the promo. Yeah. Because they can do that stuff. Yeah. And I'm broadly speaking, all right at that stuff. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I'm structurally privileged again by yeah. that, but I see so many really good artists who they're just not got the kind of brains or the way of, of being in the world that, that that can can be the kind of scrappy, pushing, always promoting, always yeah. for you. That's quite a natural. Instinct. Yeah, I don't know about like pushing and pro- like I'm still like the, the 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 process of promoting remains like this thing that you always can learn more. Yeah. Right? You oh, can absolutely. Always learn more. I got no idea. And the networking and like I, you know, there's there's a, there's kind of set networking. Channels for comedians for example that aren't really right. there for solo performers or storytellers like it's a different sphere there, there are always going to be ancillary or auxiliary events or things or happenings that you need to go and do or promote at fringes and I'm fortunate I am very fortunate that I do get a charge out of that if I go for like more than a day or two without being out there and like performing and then chatting people up I start to get depressed 
I need to be out there. See, I need to be really soaking in good. it. Yeah. I, mean, I wish I had that instinct, mm. that part of it. Like I'm, I've got the kind of like keeping on going, mm. keeping on mm. shouting about stuff, but, but not so much in the real world. Like I find that element of like, say the Edinburgh festival yes. very hard. Yeah. Like going it drains out, you, eh? going out and yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't like, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I, I think I'm an ambivert, right? Yeah. Right. Um, but, but cause my, my, my girlfriend is, is very much an introvert. Right. Okay. So I kind of, I, I know that I'm not that, but I'm definitely not, uh, an extrovert I definitely don't get energy from from the kind some of the places that that that, that uh, extroverts get it from. yeah but I mean yeah. I, I, I can get it from conversation sure sure, sure that's sure. a very different thing um so going up and, and flyering and and pushing the show and I, I always just feel like again I it's, it's to do it with not wanting to dominate not wanting to be in people's faces too much yes like so so that that's all a, like promo is a very context specific kind of thing right yeah, like right. what works or what feels pushy in Edinburgh is going to be different than at say Bath Fringe or, or Winnipeg Fringe right. or you know like every fringe has its own kind of like culture around how you do that how you do it how, what you can get away with what's gonna work right you know so in, in in Canadian fringes for example most of them are structured so that the shows they're much smaller than Edinburgh obviously but um they're structured so that shows have lineups that form out in the street you don't see that in Edinburgh so much. Mm. You don't see lineups. That's an interesting idea. Am I right? Yeah. It, you do sometimes if it's like a big sellout thing for one of the big four. But like most of the time the shows they have like collecting like lobbies or collecting spaces where people go in. And uh, in, in, in Canadian fringes you have lineups, right? And the culture has developed for the artists. Like you just, everyone shows up if you know where the lineup's going to be. And you just walk down. And you walk down and you take turns. Whoever was there first goes down the lineup first. Next person waits for 10 or 12 people. And then you follow in. And the people who are waiting for the shows know that if they're in a line, they're going to get targeted. And they're okay with that. Right. That seems like a... It's I, nice. Right. I'd love that because it's exactly that. It's the it's about consent, right? Yeah. Like with all of this stuff, like when we're talking about audiences and, and content notes and all of the... And responsibility. You don't want to push. All of that's yeah. about con- consent. And so, yeah, I don't want to go... I'm very happy to push to someone who wants to be pushed yes. to. Yes, or right. has accepted that this is where they go. Right. Um, I, I, I personally think that at fringe festivals, if someone's got a fringe brochure, they're kind of consenting to be approached. Okay, no, fair enough. I yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, so you're just making yourself visible here. Like, you know. But there are other things. So in Edinburgh, for example, like street flyering doesn't generally work but there's so much there's so much of it there's it's a it's some kind of thing i don't i'm not sure why it doesn't work for my shows so you know what i do i I set up that smut stand my typewriter on the street and do like the custom erotica and put the sign up and put the signs out on it abrupt erotica smut while you wait and i figure i mean that's always been my filtering device for for edinburgh i'm not gonna hand out stuff on on the on the street i'm gonna sit there with a provocative sign with an intriguing sign and wait for people to come up to me so that's an area where it's like suddenly i'm not that extroverted because i feel like in that case it's just it's just pissing into the wind it's just you know or screaming into the wind it doesn't make an impact in the way that's most useful it's a waste of trees yeah i'd rather like pre-qualify people who are curious and adventurous and aren't scared well it's good for your show as well to get the audience that's that's Mm -hmm. the thing a lot of artists forget when they're trying to fly it's that you want your show wants the audience that's right for that mm-hmm. show. It's not. It's there's no point in flyering everybody because everybody doesn't want to come to your show. Like there's no such thing as a general show? audience. Right, right. There's no such thing as like all audiences will come to this. Right. Every fringe attendee will want this. It's right. like, that's just not true. 
You can say that it's more accessible in terms of age. You can say that it's more accessible in terms of content, but you can't say everybody who comes to this festival will love this thing. Like, I, you, you know, you know, that's true. And, and, and I think especially when we're in, when we're doing shows that are very niche or it's a very uh, specific demographic right. or a specific standpoint that's not going to be appealing to everybody. I think it, we do ourselves a, a disservice by trying to push it out there. We're better off acknowledging that like, yeah, we get to be as particular about our audiences as they are about us. Right. Right. We Absolutely. can determine. We can be discerning. Yeah, we can, yeah, yeah. we can say, no, you yeah. wouldn't like this. Well, they can, that's good for both sides mm-hmm. of that because who wants, like nobody likes performing in front of someone who's hating it and nobody, mm-hmm. and nobody wants to sit in an audience hating a show. So, yes. you know, as, as much as you can prepare people and get, and get that kind of like, yep. this is kind of the show for you or not yep. stuff happening first. Yeah. That takes a lot of the problem yeah. out, generally speaking. You know? I will, I will backpedal. If someone comes up to my stand and they want a card, like if they come up to my smut stand and they want a card for the show and they, they're assholes already, they're being all like, they're looking down my tits. They're like, you know, they're like a group of guys, you know, like chatting me up and, and like, what's your show? What's your show? It's like, yeah, I don't think it's right for you. No, you know, and no. I'll, I'll be like, no, nah, I don't want it. You know, or if they, if I could hook them in if I were to be a little more flirty, but I'm like, I don't need you there. No. <laughs> it's okay to right. be discerning. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> So how long have you been doing this combination of uh, jobs, I guess? Like, how long has that been? Um, five years. So uh, I started doing phone sex in 2009. So April 2009. So that's six years, over six years I've been doing that. Phone Whore was the first solo play that I ever wrote. And that came out in spring of 2010. And I wasn't really sure when that came out. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know if it would find any kind of traction anywhere. I wasn't even sure that I wanted a tour because I'd never really done that. I had ne- not even never really. I had never done that. So when I started touring that first year, I did Canada and the U.S., that's when I was like, oh, this really works, actually. Oh, I'm actually good at this. You know, so yeah, five five years solid, kind of like five or six months touring, five or six months phone whoring. <laughs> <laughs> and just to be clear, when I'm touring in the States, like I will have five months off where I'm not doing any tours. I'm doing like run out shows, you know. But when I'm back in the States, when I go back there in September and I'm still touring, I'm still presenting my shows. And I'm doing phone work in the mornings. Right. So it's it's actually not usually like a full six or seven months off of the phone. It's usually closer to like two or three months off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So five years only. Um, I'm a late bloomer. I'm 44. And I feel like sometimes I'm like, why couldn't I have figured this out earlier? <sighs> Well, you know. it is what it is. Like experience makes it right. possible. The work that you do comes yeah. from those forty four yes. like all of those years yes. that you weren't working, you still were working because it comes from you and it yes. comes from all of those things. And that's the interesting thing I about it. I try to be holistic about it, but I still sit there and go, ah, yeah. oh, like I why I get it. Yeah, yeah. It's a you know, imminent mortality, et cetera, et cetera. You know? Yeah. <laughs> that that's a very interesting thing to be out in in in, in the performance world, though, as an older, I think of myself as like, they call it in college education, returning students or non-traditional students. Right. I feel like in some ways out on the fringe, I'm a non-traditional performer. Although in the UK, you're going to have older fringe performers. But in North America, definitely fringe is a, is a young person's sport. 
Right. You know, so I feel like I definitely stand out in that way. And, and uh, <laughs> there's right. only so much time you can spend sleeping on actual couches, you know. Right. And there's <laughs> a kind of like a number of ways that you stand out in, I guess, you are like within the sex positive kind of world mm-hmm. and like kink community mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You're out about that. Mm-hmm. You're out about being a sex worker. Mm-hmm. You're out of being like, you're, you're, you're comfortable talking about your age. Mm-hmm. Like you've already, you, you know, you brought it up. I, yeah, yeah, I of didn't course. bring up. Yeah, yeah. And so you're like, you're, you're, you're being very open about lots of things that society doesn't think that we should be mm-hmm. open about. Mm-hmm. And before we was recording, we were talking about areas that you, you're interested yeah. in talking about. And one of those was about being a out there in, in people's faces, fat person. Yes. I guess. Yes. And I, 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 I frame it that way because I don't know where I stand about using that word, but I know lots of people want to reclaim it and own it and stuff, so that's great. But I feel complicated using it. I like think uh, when, when we're talking, yeah. right now you should feel free to use the word fat. <laughs> I, think, I think with all of those kind of titles, if you wanted, like if you were talking to another fat person, you probably shouldn't say fat. Right. Because you don't know, mm-hmm. because they might be offended by it. They yeah. might not be a fat person, they might just be overweight yeah and hating it right right? so in which case fat would be not they haven't reclaimed it for themselves so you kind of go to where people are comfortable right like i never say to another fat person i I never say anything that says you're a fat person i'll talk about myself as a fat person i'll say you know us bigger girls or uh, you know i'll use some of the euphemisms you know it's complicated like yeah you want to tread carefully in that area especially with women you want to tread very no, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> it is, yeah. So, so I don't know that there was a question there. Well, like, no, yeah. I mean, I yeah. don't. I, I mean, I don't to a certain extent. I don't really do questions so much. Yes. as just talk at somebody and then stop and then see yeah. what they say in response. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, so I guess I was just giving a disclaimer for people listening to okay, me, just yes. to make it clear that I uh, have complicated feelings about using that word. But, okay, but I want to use it because you want to talk about what it's like to be somebody like who is fat yeah um, who is being out about it and making i guess performance that at least doesn't like is either going to be about it or not or, or it's kind of you can't not have things have a, have an element of that about them if you are just physically a fat person yeah I guess, yeah right? yeah there is uh i i i got my start as a like as a performer who's fat doing burlesque actually right uh, in san francisco with uh, a woman uh, who became a good friend, Heather McAllister. She's she passed away in two thousand seven, but uh, she she had a burlesque troupe that was all plus size girls, plus size people, and she said, you know, basically any time you have, I'm I'm going to be misquoting it. Any time there is a fat person up on stage as something other than the butt of a joke, it is a radical act of performance and it's radical or it's revolutionary. And I just think that's so true. And it doesn't mean that your, your work can't, your work should be good. Like I, you know, I want my, I never, I'm not just making that point. The work needs to be good. But what she's saying, what she said was it's, it just is there. You'll see it in comedy a lot. You'll see it in movies all the time. TV. I mean, it's just, it's that it's, 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 it's very hard for anyone outside the kind of the Hollywood thin model to Mm -hmm. go out there, women especially, Mm -hmm. uh, to go out there and and just do their work without their size playing into it somehow. So I I was actually um, involved uh, 
I won't say, I never was like a, a fat philosopher or anything. I wasn't doing like all the fat acceptance writings, but I did uh, write for a while for a fat acceptance magazine. So I would interview people and, and review books or whatever. And then later I put theory into practice and got into the burlesque a little bit shortly after I had started dancing and studying dance. So what a lot of people don't know because it exists under my legal name is this whole body of work that I did before 2009 of uh, choreography and dance instruction. So like body acceptance uh, through dance. And, you know, I would write satires or parodies, musicals for my, this community theater, dance and theater group that I founded. I would write scripts for full length dance musicals, you know, and, 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 and do these basic kind of do, do, do the choreography for it. And a lot of those parodies were extremely political around fat. And I don't think that they suffered, actually. I think they were pretty well done. When looking back at the scripts, I'm like, damn, that was good, you know? Since then, since that operations kind of, all that kind of closed down and um, I focused on my own solo work, I felt less compelled to be more overt in my politics around that. Feeling that just by being up there on stage and just doing what I do, like as a fat woman, that's already yeah, absolutely. That makes a big impact on people. Almost, it's like as you were saying, it's kind of like it's almost more radical if it's not about that. It's almost it almost mm. it certainly is more unsettling for people. I think mm. unnerving. It's very unusual, right? Mm. Well, when we talk about representation, mm. generally speaking, like. I think, you know, absolutely, like, if we're going to use the word fat fat people, mm-hmm. are the least represented. And it's very interesting because of the fact that, you know, it, it means that everybody should get on board with this idea that what we see on the screens doesn't reflect life because it doesn't matter if you if you've got all of the other privileges you still haven't seen a seen communities who look like the communities you're in on or screen. rather we are. We are we are spread throughout society. We cut across all right, class, all right. races, all genders. You know, it's like we are definitely there. I think the issue with why fat just isn't an acceptable thing for people to even identify with right. is it's kind of it's it's perceived as malleable. It's perceived as changeable, and everyone understands which direction it's supposed to be changing in. Right. You know, so if you're not changing in that direction, if you're not actively talking about changing in that direction, if you're not making strides to to, to become less fat, then that's your fault. Then that, then any discrimination or prejudice you receive for being fat is your fault. Right. Because you could, you could just not be fat. Then just could skip the whole thing. Right. So it's, it's an aspirational thing, right? We, we should be striving towards this thing. We all should be striving towards this thing. And so when people, they don't like body acceptance, they don't want body acceptance. They don't want to they don't want to be part of that because they feel like, well, if I accept it as I am and I'm not that, which is oh, everything, you know, which is like the pinnacle, then what that says about me is all the things that we're told that that, la- that fat people are lazy and undisciplined and blah, 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 you know. Yeah. Whereas, frankly, I think I'm one of the more disciplined fuckers you're going to find out there just because I'm more interested in going after my own craft and my own art and, like, creating that from, like, my insides, my own, like, internal, this is what I need to do, rather than relying on society to dictate this is the goal that you should be striving for. That's mindless. That's, you know. Right. So... It, it, it's it, it people don't want to identify with it because for sure fat is like the lower class uh the lower ranked kind of state of being when you look at 
thin versus fat. It's like, no. Right. It's like, it's in the same way that people don't want to identify or sympathize or empathize with very poor people. Right. You know, they want to be aspiring to oh, the and, rich. And, 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 you know, and never, if you're, if you're fat and poor, oh. whoa. Yeah. You know, because then, then, you know, then, then, yeah, then, then it's deemed Then rich. you are really right. not, you're really a lazy fucker. <clears throat> right. Right. If you, if you're all that. Yeah. How can you afford to get fat? That's what they say. Yeah, that's the kind of yeah. attitude. As if, like, as if that's got anything to do with it. Yeah. So, so I mean, <laughs> it's a really complicated thing. Um, I do like to talk about it, but I find there's something very powerful and, and, and radical right. in just living my life. Right. Going for what I want. Assuming that I'm desirable to a certain number of people that I want to be desired by, you know. Right. Well, you're very, you know, you, 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 it's not like you're not getting laid, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally getting laid. I'm totally getting laid. Not, not all the time. Yeah. Not all the time. You know, but, which is, yeah. you know, which is... Yeah, but, but, this, but so I'd rather <laughs> just go and live that life and it's, right. it's more... Like, I'll talk about it. We're talking about it because I think about this yeah. stuff for sure. But I'd rather go out and model the life that I want to live. Right. And that life is just... Sometimes it's thinking about this stuff politically and sometimes it's just, no, I don't have, I just want to go out there and do my stuff. The reality of it too is that like my size stands me in good stead in performance environments. People are kind of like, whoa, right, right, right. they're a little bit, and they're a little bit taken aback. This dates back to all the way back to my first public performance in dance where I was doing some very basic dance moves in the back of a kind of an ensemble piece at the junior college that I was dancing at as a non-traditional student, you know, 10 years older than everybody. And people said afterwards, we just, you're so striking. We couldn't take your, our eyes off you. And like underneath it, the subtext was, you're so much bigger than everybody else on stage. It's like, that made me feel really subconscious for a while. But now I'm like, I'm willing to own that. I'm willing to use that. My time dancing and doing burlesque and doing naked comedy and do, you know, uh, all this time, all this energy that I put into like body acceptance and acceptance of my own body, you know, over the last 20 years has really stood me instead as a performer now because then I just go up. There's something about the posture of pride versus shame that is very, very visible mm -hmm. from stage. People notice that. They don't know how to describe it. They just say, you seem really comfortable up there. And it's like a lot of people aren't comfortable in their own skins and you can see it. You can really see it. Well, yeah. I mean, you when know. I first started hosting, I definitely wasn't. And I think mm -hmm. I'm, I'm getting more comfortable in my skin. Or at least mm -hmm. I'm, what I like to think of is I'm like getting comfortable with discomfort sure. and awkwardness. Like, yeah. I go up and I'm awkward, but I own it. Yeah. I guess it's a similar thing in, mm -hmm. in that the, when I first started, I definitely think that, you know, audiences reacted to me being ashamed of my, yeah. my of my awkwardness yeah. and, my, and my discomfort, you know, and, and myself, you know, I've got, mm -hmm. got a few body image issues myself, mm -hmm. but you know, I'm not, and I'm not comparing it. In no, like no, 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 no. Everyone's got it. We're, we're not allowed to like... <laughs> We're not allowed to, like, love our bodies in this society. Right. When you're a performer, you yeah. have to go up and actually be a body on a mm -hmm. stage. And everybody's looking at you. Mm -hmm. And so it's, 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 it's an interesting that a lot of the time people who do feel self-conscious or weird about their bodies or whatever are attracted to that act. Yeah. But I think it's because one, once you do get acceptance from an audience, mm -hmm. that's kind of... That's what you want. That's yeah. what you want. Yeah. And like you're being seen and, and, no, and people are responding the mm -hmm. way you want them to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then that's like the goal. That's like the, the thing that you never could do. And you, yeah. you know, yeah. before, you yeah, know, yeah, I yeah, guess yeah. that's why it happens. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's interesting as well, what you were saying about fat people being the butt of jokes and 
like a lot of the areas that you're in are the butt of jokes, right? Like sex work. Like mm-hmm. since the more the more I become aware of sex worker rights movement and yeah. politics and the the language and how people would like to be addressed Referred and to, stuff yeah. like that, the more it ruins all comedy. Oh my like god! Any comedy you want to watch, yeah. Like and it's the and it's the same with 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 uh, fat rights. It's the same. Oh yeah. Right? Um, or 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 butch women. Right. Or or. or, or Women who like to have sex. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you... So, no. When I, so, I, I first started... Okay, so, the way that I've learned to perform is I just... I end up being really into a genre of performance, and I, I go there, and I spend a lot of time in it, and then I'm like, okay, I've absorbed all I need from this, right? So, I did that with storytelling. I did that with spoken word. I first started back in 2009, 2010 in stand-up comedy, right? right? Ne- learned early on that my style of what I wanted to do in terms of comedy is more storytelling. Right. Like, I can tell things that are more humorous or not, but they're not going to be set-up, set-up punchline. Right. Just not going to happen. And I wouldn't go... Uh, on the advice of what, who I consider my mentor, he's like, okay, you're doing great in my naked comedy show. <laughs> I would go up and be naked telling, you know, right. my stories. So you're doing great here. You need to go out and do the open mics. That You need to fall on your face a bunch, right? And uh, so I did. I would go out to the, these open mics. And, and early on, I would try to get friends to come out to these open mics. And over the course of a few months, I was like, I don't want to bring my friends to these things and expose them. So what I started doing, at least for a couple of months, is I I created a bigot comedy bingo sheet that I would hand to my friends with a jar full of pennies. And it was full of the squares of everything. Because open mics are like the cesspool. It's it's like the... Comedy open mics, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it would be things like, oh, hooker jokes, self-deprecating fat person jokes, Oh, uh, fat jokes, sketchy neighborhood joke, um, you know, homeless, you know, all the things. Yeah, yeah, slut, 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 you know. Um, uh, I just just put them all on the card because I had to give my friends something else to focus on just to get to my set. So that's why they were there to support me. But like to get through everybody else's crap, it's like, okay, here, play this little game. Please don't shout out bingo in the middle of the in the middle of the show. <laughs> but a friend of mine filled up her card three times. Yeah. I mean, I believe it. But that's the Over the course thing. of an hour and a half or two hours at, yeah. at, a, at a open mic, a comedy open mic. And so, it's, it's yeah, it's not a good, it, there's a lot of like, crap humor that people are, right. Lowest common, lowest common denominator. I don't know why. I don't know. I'm not your standard comedy market, I guess. <laughs> no, but I mean, I guess that's the thing. Like, as much as the arts scene in in general is more, in some ways, like uh, like welcoming to different mm. kinds of people, mm. it's it's not outside of society. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you see how 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 little is moved from society in yes. the in the open mic comedy circuit. Or like like I mean, and generally speaking, I think it's complicated. Like, I, I understand. Like I've I've talked to some comedians about this sort of stuff, and they're mm. like, if we go out and we don't do this stuff, then we just die and die and die. Like, it, there is a complicated element where it's also the res- audience's responsibility for laughing at those jokes. Although yes. the ultimate responsibility is with the comedians. Yes. And don't get me wrong; I'm not yes. trying to forgive yeah. them. Um, but but I mean, you know, particularly for women, I think who are trying to make it as comedians, that the temptation to go to those 
annoying places because the audiences will laugh and they won't die every time is is kind of like it's that's a real betrayal for them but they but but it's also a temptation and yeah i mean you 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 gotta be you gotta live right if people are trying to be like working comedians you gotta live but so 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 that's fine fortunately there are always going to be comedians who do kind of have that reputation for existing out on the edge and the people who want that comedy will go there um i think I think if you're in that position, right, if you're in that position where you know what you want to say isn't going to go, you know, what you want to say isn't going to sell to the audience, well, I think you can still kind of edge up to it. Like, try one or two. Right, absolutely. Because there's always a time-honored tradition of like, ah, that didn't work. You can just do that from stage. Yeah. That's fine. That's like a, a standard well, kind of out, ex- exit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a good, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that while I'm saying some of the responsibility lies with the audience, yeah. I, I also think that audiences will respond to mm-hmm. other kinds of jokes, mm-hmm. like that, 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 we, that we do laugh at lots of things, mm-hmm. and actually this this kind of temptation to go to those places yes. is kind of, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it's we're making look, assumptions about the audiences, the audiences audiences can stretch there if we, right. if we do if we lay the groundwork right if we do give the context right like the story that I told at Natural Born Storytellers just last night you know it was about one of my more extreme phone calls right one of my more extreme regulars yeah who was really hardcore and like full of nail guns and baby eels and scat you know <laughs> and and like I was actually hesitating before that before the show started I'm like I just don't know I don't know how this is going to go. And, you know, I talked to the host and I sat and I was on towards the end. And so I could kind of get a feel for it. And I just, I went for it. Yeah. And, and people did dig it. But I think it's interesting. Storytelling audiences. It's different than comedy. They, what yeah. they want is to have something revealed. To yes. Them. Like, I mean, I know, I mean, partly from running storytelling nights, but mm-hmm. partly from being an, an audience member in those nights is that the, the things you respond to the most to where people are, are open and honest. Yes. And it doesn't matter. Like one of the things I always say about storytelling is it doesn't, it's everyone thinks it's about plot, but it's about character. Mm-hmm. Like, and actually what we respond to is someone being themselves yeah. up on stage. It doesn't yeah. really matter if they've got a story. Yeah. It matters if they reveal something of themselves. Yeah, or, they, or something has changed about them right. in the course of, right. of the story. You know I mean? So it does come down to narrative a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I'm like, not suggesting the, the, that narrative know, is important. Yeah, but, but it is how they personally... Right. Um, changed and how they feel about it, how they express that. Right. So well, once you realise it's about character, character, like you, the, the the plots that you can tell yeah. are so much more varied. Yeah. Because of, uh, if it's a personal thing, it doesn't have to have that. What I mean is, it doesn't have to have like big things happen. It can be a really small, <laughs> be an epic, intimate. You know, it can be, it can, exactly. It can be like it can be about you know whatever. Like yeah. there has to be stakes. There has yes. to be some kind of conflict. Probably. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's about you. It's about mm-hmm. the characters. And 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 so yeah, I think that that's the thing. One of the things I like I like about storytelling is that you see how audiences can respond yeah. to these kind of yeah. these kind of things, and how we don't have to do that, you know, as much. And also, I think that there are like there is there are lots of comedians who are bucking this trend. I hope like, so. Yeah, there, there are, and yeah. I, I see them, and they're, they're not necessarily the majority. No, they're not. And then, and, but, but and you there. and I are they're in the there. fringe world, so right. we're going to be seeing more of that. Right. Anyway. Right. 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 Where well, that's the funny thing, though. That's the thing. Mainstream comedy now right. is like 
that's where it's at. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. that, that actually people think they're being edgy, if you like, but they're in the mainstream. Yeah. Um, and so the people who are actually being edgy are the people who are making really nice stuff that isn't yeah. offending anyone now. Yeah, or or it's or it's educational, or right, it's, right, you know, right. it's it's again less set up set up punchline and more like anecdotal. Yeah. You know, storytelling gives you that authentic connection. Yeah, and I think authentic connection allows you to go further because you've you've kind of opened up and people step into that and they want to trust you to take you there. Uh, I think the problem that I see, I've, it's not even a problem. I just, I've, I've seen it in comedy shows a fair bit where the, there's not a real connection from the comedian to the audience. It just, they, either they don't feel like they have time for it or it's just not part of their persona on stage. And when you get, when you open up like that, it allows the audience to invest more and they'll trust you more and you could go to those edgy places. I've seen some comedians do it, but not a lot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and maybe that's that's one kind of humor, right? That's one kind of humor. Other people might like the more kind of wordplay or more like, you know, cerebral or... I don't, there's lots of kinds of comedy that I don't know about. No, but, yeah. but I mean, it's the thing mm. is, I mean, it, what it's a, the, the, the real problem is that the idea of just using marginalised groups as, as, as punchlines. Yeah. Like, I mean, what I find the weirdest about it is, surely it's boring. Like, we've heard those jokes. Yeah. It's not like they're new jokes. It's mm -mm. just, it's the same joke again and again and again and again. And, and, you know. Why do people laugh at it then? Because I always thought yeah. that, like, laugh was... The laugh instinct, what, is this, it's a reaction to something surprising. Right. Right? Right. So is it that somebody is daring to say it out loud? Surely that's not surprising either because these things are said out loud in newspapers. Yeah, right, and right. it's there everywhere. It, yeah. So what, why do people laugh at stuff that is pretty... We're soaking in it. Right. Why, why do people laugh? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I wish if I had that answer to that, I mean, you know. We could revolutionise comedy. Right. I mean, that's the, that is a good point, though. I mean, there are lots of different kinds of laugh. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, you know, maybe maybe there is some hope in that maybe not all of the audience are laughing in agreement. No, right. Like, like I often laugh you know in, in absolutely the wrong place because oh. i'm nervous yeah. yeah 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 and so I, I maybe we can try and kid ourselves that some of those audience members are laughing nervously but I, they or they're going along with no it, no it's, yeah yeah it's hard mm. to it's hard to square yeah it's all right but that's all right we don't have to <laughs> we don't have to um, it's not our business yeah so wow so i mean you know we've covered a lot of ground in, in <laughs> we've also covered a lot of time yes uh, so the, the last kind of question that I ask everybody is do you have anything to plug and I guess this will probably be coming out in July I think okay um, so like mid-July or yeah probably early July early July but... okay so I have so much to plug uh, <laughs> so as you know like I'm touring the UK for four and a half months this time around so I've only been here I've been here like a month you know, I still got three and a half months left to go. Uh, in July, I will be appearing in the Buxton Fringe Festival with two shows. I'm running two shows in repertory. So Phone Whore and Slut Revolution. So Phone Whore was there last year. I'm bringing it back for two nights. And then Slut Revolution, my second play, is uh, mixed up there over the course of like six days or something. So that, what, what's, what's the what's the, the, the pitch for, 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 for Slut, Slut Revolution? Okay. What's the, what's the hook? So Slut Revolution is kind of my artistic response when people were asking me after they saw Phone Whore, how did you get to be the sort of person 
to talk to strange men about their dicks for money, right? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. Let me get back to you on that. So I spent, you know, my writing season, like, uh, delving into, basically, it's my uh, formative sexual events, or what I viewed as form formative events in my sexual past. And um, for the show, I'm talking with a hookup for the evening, who's not on stage, but, like, you know, I'm talking with this person, having this coffee house conversation. Someone... I, I, that I met online and we're meeting for the first time. And, you know, sometimes when you, when you meet people in those, those first date kind of situations, sometimes you can tell right away this is going nowhere. Other times the conversation is happening. It is alive and you are going to, it goes broad and it goes deep. And before you know it, it's 3 a.m. and you're sitting in the corner at someone's house party and you both are like, into it, right? It goes deep. So this is one of those conversations. So I'm talking with my hookup and then at different points through that kind of negotiation about how this evening is going to go, I have flashback moments to these formative events. So it's real time flirting with my guy, hoping that it's going to happen mixed with, you know, awkward masturbation moments when I was 11 <laughs> or uh, my first experience with BDSM at Burning Man. All the things that, that have gone to get me where I am today. And Slut Revolution, uh, if you look at it in the, from the typography, is it Slut Revolution or is it Slut Evolution? The idea being that sometimes you can see the events happening that are like earth-shattering, groundbreaking, soul-crushing, life-shifting. You can, you can feel that in the moment. Other times right. you can only look back and see. It's like the difference between an earthquake and slow tectonic plate formations of continents you know so that's a slut revolution i don't know it's a storytelling show it's right. very much a storytelling show um well, i'm sold i want to see it yeah you do want to <laughs> see it like phone whore and like every other play that i do it's not so easily taken out as like it's not a comedy it's not a, it's not a drama exactly it's it shifts it, yeah it, shifts it definitely shifts tone yeah, and because right. this one too is shifting through time as well it's, it's a stretch for me it has been ever since i've been you know this came out in 2011 but still i'm always like working hard to bring myself back to those vulnerable places 11 right, right, 17 31 right. what was i doing you know so that's the revolution and that's happening at buxton fringe and i'm taking that to edinburgh also i'm going to be in the buxton fringe with those to I'm doing Manchester Fringe with Phone Whore, Dundee with Phone Whore, and then Edinburgh is a nightmare. It's like Slut Revolution and Phone Whore and the Smut Slam Cabaret. Right. So there's three shows there. And three then I go shows. back to the States and I'm touring around and people should definitely look at my website to keep up on what touring stuff is happening. And I'll tell you, I'm just going to slip this in because I'm still excited about it and maybe I shouldn't announce it to the world, but I will. Like my whole goal of being over this year in the UK is to really be making connections and meeting people who want to present me later because I want to be moving, relocating here for a few years. I don't know under what auspices, but I want to create and perform and have the UK be my home base for a few years. Why the UK? Partly there is a romantic interest sure, here that I want to be sure. closer to. What I've found is that like I do very well in these long distance relationships as long as there's a time period where I'm like in proximity and I have time to really build that closeness. And then I can take off and tour. You know, I, I need the, like a home base kind of and so I can go off and fly kind of thing. Um, so there is that. But also I just feel like it's time. I've been using Montreal as kind of my grounding spot for like four years, three years. And um, I can really do my writing anywhere. I've found from performing here that I, my performances 
kind of work here. Yeah, definitely. I want to penetrate European markets. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do some work in the continental uh, English-speaking Europe and is that much closer you know that, you know so I, I definitely am ex- wanting to expand my performance territory and my my working reach and so UK feels like it's where I want to be right now right because I mean yeah. I guess when you're performing in Canada or in the UK you're like taking your this authentic American experience mm. that you've created like you know the phone hall narrative is a, is is within that location yes, yes and then you're taking it to places where it's even it's one step more removed you're even more different yeah uh, yeah to people yeah which is you know a, 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 a benefit for you i guess as well as it, yeah as well as for the audiences yeah i mean i did have some concern about how 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 when i first came over to the uk i was like i don't know how audiences here are going to respond to this i know for a fact like i touch on some race issues in the play and like it's a different history here you right. know uh, when I go off to say the Netherlands or Germany or whatever, it's going to be even more removed. There's going to be not language barriers, but there is that yeah, cultural definitely. language kind of jump that people may intellectually understand the words, but may not understand the colloquialisms as much, you know. So we'll see how it goes. But I've, I've heard from enough people over the last two years that like, you should go to Germany with this. There's an audience for this in yeah. like Scandinavia or, you know, wherever. So, yeah, so the UK feels like a place where it's a good launch place for these other places that I want to go. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's why. Well, mm. so uh, the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> say goodbye? But I just got here. No. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, thank you for listening all the way to the end, I guess. If you, if you stuck around to hear this bit, then you've been sitting through the whole thing. Thank you. Um, go out and, and be as honest and true and kind as you can. And, and, um, I hope to see you out there. Have a great, have a great summer. (laughs) That's one of my favorite goodbyes so far. Bye everybody. To find out more about Cameron Moore, go to CameronMoore.com. Stand Up Tragedy, who I mentioned in this episode, are going up to the Edinburgh Festival again this year. We'll be putting on an hour of tragedy every day at 7.30 at the Banshee Labyrinth as part of the Free Fringe. Apart from on Tuesdays, when there'll be live recordings of Getting Better Acquainted. We're doing the whole run, the 8th till the 30th of August. It's not just going to be your regular Stand Up Tragedy where... I gather together people from different parts of the arts to do tragedy, so comedians, storytellers, musicians, spoken word artists and more, coming together in a different mix of sad and funny and thoughtful. It's also going to have special editions where there'll be guest hosts, guest collaborations, all sorts of exciting stuff going on. So check out our website www.standuptragedy.co.uk Friend us on Facebook where we're Stand Up Tragedy or follow us on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy to get more details about the exciting stuff that we're doing. Stand Up Tragedy tries to create a safe space to talk about unsafe things and to make you cry until you laugh and laugh until you cry. Because I believe that getting together and looking at the hard stuff, looking at the sad stuff and having 
catharsis as a group is a really important thing. Stand Up Tragedy is also a podcast and the podcasts come out every two weeks or so, although during the Edinburgh Festival they'll be coming out all the time. We're going to have a whole range. Basically we're going to be an audio channel of really interesting, exciting, funny, moving tragedy. So you can check that out on iTunes or any of the places that podcasts go to hang out on the internet. And the episode that contains Cameron Moore is Tragic Spring, Act 3, Tragic Sex. Stand Up Tragedy is also producing my first ever solo show called What About The Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. And that'll be every day apart from Mondays at the Cabaret Voltaire at 12.05. As research for the show, I did a survey of a thousand men, what they think about masculinity and patriarchy and that became a thing in its own right you can read through all of the responses guest posts and blogs and find out more information about the show over at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk